Thanks for listening to the Refuel Podcast. Be sure to tune in every Thursday for a new episode. Throughout the other lessons in the series, we've been learning about who we are to God. And tonight, we are going to talk about the fact that we are a child of the King. And the first passage we're going to go to is in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. And I'll go ahead and read that. Y'all can turn there with me. It's also up on the screen. Also, warning, the screen has it in NIV, but my Bible's a different translation than that, so if it's a little different, that's why. Anyway, it says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by, his, by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. But then, indeed... When you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? In the premise of that passage that we're going to start with is looking at verse 7, that we are a child of the king. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. That's the pivotal, the pivotal point of the passage, because as it's building up, it talks about, yeah, you were going to inherit this salvation through Christ, but before that point, you were actually a slave. The climax and the turning point is the fact that God made us his son, and then after that, we're set free. And the question Paul's asking is, you guys have been set free. Why are you acting like you're still in slavery? Why are you still acting like you're in bondage? You've been set free. You're a child of the king. You've been transformed. Or in other words, Jake, you can pull up the next slide, God changed our relationship status, which makes me think of like, I don't know, people like, uh, I can't date right now, I'm like in a relationship with Jesus, like, um, or the people who are like, hey, actually, did you know that God wants us to date? And then like two months later, God came to me again and said he wants us to break up. He changed his mind very quickly. Like, I think of the people who use the God card in the relationships, but of course, that's not what it's talking about here, but that's just what kind of came to mind. He did change our relationship status, though, and it was permanent. He changed who we physically were. We were a slave, and we were in bondage to the world, and then he came, sent Jesus, and changed who we were. We became a slave to an actual heir of the king. And the question Paul's asking is, you've been set free. Why are you turning back? Think of it this way. If you were a slave, and you've been set free, would you ever want to go back and be chained up and be enslaved again? Probably not, right? And that's the question he's asking. And I've actually been reading Exodus in my personal studies, and I read a passage the other night as I was preparing for this lesson, and I completely did not mean to find this. And I stumbled upon it. I was like, whoa, that actually matches perfectly with what we've been talking, what we'll be talking about in the lesson. It's in Exodus chapter 13, verses 17 and 18. Y'all don't have to turn there. You can if you want to, but it's also up on the board. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward 
the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. In the story here in Exodus, I'm sure a lot of you know it, but just to kind of set the stage there, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. God, through a series of events, actually got them out of slavery and was leading them into the promised land called Canaan. And this was while they were on the way to this promised land. God had been promising them this land with milk and honey and all these prosperous things, and he's leading them out of it. He got them out of slavery, and he's trying to get them to point B. But to get from point A to point B, there was a quick path, and it was to go through the Philistine country. But God knew if they go through the Philistine country, they're going to see war. These people are mean. There's wars going on. I could protect them, but I know that they're going to freak out, and they're not going to trust me. Although I've done all these things already, I already know what they're going to do. So God actually took them around, and they had to go a much longer way, which made their journey much, much longer. Which makes me think of this passage exactly. I mean, this is the literal interpretation of what Paul is hitting at. He's like, you guys were once slaves. And to the Galatians, to Jews that he was writing to, they really understood what he's getting at. You guys were in bondage, literally. Your family was back in bondage one day. God got them out of the, And you see that he brought them to the promised land. God's doing that again with you through Christ. You were in bondage. He sent his son to get you out of slavery and one day bring you to the promised land. Heaven, this life is point A to point B. So along that road, why would you freak out when you run into something and want to go back to point A? It's a continual cycle to point B. Why would you do that? Which makes me think of whenever times get hard, things get rough in our Christian life, what's our typical response a lot of times? We throw in the towel and say, I'm done. It's like Joel Osteen told me this was going to be easy. Like he told me that I was going to get rich quick. Like I was listening to Joyce Meyer and she was just encouraging me with going to the gym and getting healthy. And then like I'm facing problems with my relationships. Things at school are going hard. Like I didn't know that I was signing up for this. I thought the Christian life was all about kicks and giggles. But actually I'm getting kicked and I've got all these things in life being thrown at me. Like what's our typical response? We quit. We say we're done. So a lot of times that makes me wonder, which that sets us around course, around the mountain, around the Philistine country, just like the Israelites did in Exodus. God knew they were going to face a problem. So ahead, he's like, yep, whatever. Takes them around. Much longer, much more difficult. They went through much more battles than they ever would have went through going through the Philistine country because they were afraid to go through. So in our lives, practically speaking, we need to push through the hard times. Whenever we face them, we say, look what God has already got me out of. Why would he still not be faithful to get me through it? And for us, we can look back at the Israelites and go, you guys are completely stupid. Like, you guys were enslaved. You guys were being beaten every single day. God delivered you from that. You're going to face a little army and want to go back to being enslaved. It's like, what idiots? And it's easy to do that. But then it's like, this is part two of the story. Us. They would be looking at us going, idiots. Like, you guys were enslaved to sin. Christ set you free, and you face a little roadblock, and you're going to go back to your enslavement. You're going to go back to your sin and back to your bondage. But it's like, we can look at them and say, you all are stupid. They could look at us and say, you guys are stupid. But it's facing the same thing. Theirs was literal. Ours is spiritual. That's the difference there. What are we going to do when we hit those blocks? We need to understand, we're a child of the king. Think of how a king protects his children, literally. It's like a huge deal when a king has a child. Like, over in Britain, they have those kids, and, like, it's all over even America's Today Show. Like, look, they had a kid. Like, I don't care. But it's a huge deal when a king has a kid. So whenever God is being described of as a king and we are his children, that's a huge deal. 
These kings would do anything for their children. These kings are actually raising up their children to one day inherit the throne, which that's what God is doing for us on earth. We've been studying Romans in the small group I lead, and we got to a passage, and it said, one day God's going to glorify you to the point that you will actually be an heir to the throne. And I forget who it was asked the question, like, wait, wait, they're just going to make us an heir to the throne? Like, doesn't that kind of sound like a kick in the face to God? Yeah, but that's the point. God is humbling himself to the point that he would actually take us, sinful man, and transform us to his sons to make us inherit that throne, to be an heir to it one day. That's how big of a deal that is, and that's why Paul uses that analogy. So, differently than you might think of it at first, but God did, in fact, change our relationship status. He changed us from slaves to an heir of the king. The next one is God didn't just take us in either as an heir of the king. This wasn't just something that God said, okay, I'm going to do this. This is something that actually cost God a great price because God didn't just take us in. He bought us. And we see that if you all want to turn to 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 6 and 7 we're going to hit on so you can kind of follow along. It's interesting because the two verses that talk about us being bought at a price One's at the end of chapter 6, and the other one's at the end of chapter 7. And in between that actually sets the stage for what Paul's talking about. And also, interestingly enough, I was talking about this passage this weekend, and then when Matt gave me this lesson, and he already had the verses, I just kind of had to plan the lesson with it. I was like, whoa, I already talked about that. So it's fresh on my mind, and I was really excited about it. Because At the tail end of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul's writing and says, You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. You say, God actually freed me, so why do I have to do anything now? Wouldn't that mean that I was enslaved to him? Yes, actually. Because think of it this way. April and I were trying to come up with a picture to describe this earlier, and it just failed. Like, just be careful what you type into Google Images. Please turn on the safe search or something. Be careful of what you type in. Even the littlest things bring up the worst results. But anyway, we're looking up, trying to picture this, and it's so hard to picture. But imagine that when you buy a car, typically you don't buy it in cash. Or you buy a house. You don't buy those things in cash. It's financed. You have the house. You own the house. But actually, the bank does because you're in turn indebted to them. Imagine then at some point that somebody steps in for you and says, I'm going to pay off the rest of the house now. Who then at that point are you indebted to? The bank or the other person? The other person. Just in this world, whenever we were enslaved to God, whenever we were enslaved to sin, we were indebted to sin. God stepped in and said, I'm going to take that sin. So then in turn, we're not indebted to sin. We're indebted to God at that point. We're saying, you took this when I didn't deserve it. As a response, my life is going to be owed to you. It's two sides of the coin. I was serving sin, even though I didn't know it. But now I'm serving God. Because just even in the last passage we talked about in Galatians, Paul said, you guys were worshiping false gods before you were saved. And he's not just talking about idols and gods that you literally bow down to. He's talking about anything in our life that was before him because we were designed to worship. God created us to worship because he created us to worship him. So naturally, we have a worshiping attitude with everything that we do, whether you know it or not. I think of a couple things. One, sports. How many of us get super amped up for sports? Like we paint our bodies blue or whatever, green, and go down to the Marshall Stadium, and we freak out. We're like, yeah, go herd. Like, yeah. 
like, that's not me, but people do it. And I was like, are you serious? Like, you get this pumped up about sports? And then you've also got people, like, fangirling over music. Like, oh, Hillsong United, they just sang Oceans. Like, oh, my gosh, I'm getting weak at the knees. Then there's, like, just, Justin Bieber and all these other people. And it's almost like a worship type thing. Like, I went to a 21 Pilots concert over the summer. I do love 21 Pilots. But it's not to the point where... I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, I've got to get my click gear. Like, i got to do all this. But there are girls there, like, literally, like, oh, my gosh, I love you. Like, could you just touch me? Like, if that's not worship, I don't know what is. Like, they're longing for just the touch, just the brief embrace of the singer who they don't even know. They're worshiping them. Whenever we keep up on the stats of all these football players and we know where they were born and we know their mom's name, their dad's name, all these things, like, that's just freaking creepy. Like, that's weird. If I were famous and somebody told me, like, I knew where you were born and the hospital and I know your mom's name and I know that your parents were actually divorced when you were two and that's not your real dad, I I would get a restraining order. But people do these things and it's creepy. They're worshiping them. Because, like, what did God design us to do? God designed us to get into his word and learn everything about him. God designed us to live our life longing and reaching out for his embrace. Yet, we think it's totally normal to fangirl over One Direction all day and look up everything about Liam's new haircut and all these weird things. Like, I don't even know. Is that his name, Liam? But, like, that's the comparison there. It's like, this is acceptable, but then worshiping God is weird. No, we were designed to worship, and you can actually see it clearly through the way that people live their lives. They're blind to it, but you're always worshiping something. That was the point of what Paul was saying. You're worshiping something. Worship God. Submit to God. You won't regret it. All of these things that you're worshiping and longing for, it's like Justin Bieber doesn't even know your name. He doesn't care about you. Like any girls, guys, fangirls over people, they don't care about you. They, They don't. They don't know your name. They don't want to. They're just doing all this stuff for money. But God wants to know you. God did everything he did so that he can know you. God doesn't need us, but he wants us, and that's why he sent his son to die for us. So Paul's like, why are you guys worshiping all these idols that won't fill you up when you've got the God who actually did all these things so he can know you? That's the difference there. And in 1 Corinthians, in the passages that we're looking at here, he's saying, you were bought at a price. Like, he's not just a false idol that you're going to long for and you don't really get anything from it because they're not real. He wants to know you, and because of that, he bought you with a price. He sent his son. He took on your sins. He died on the cross, was nailed to it, took on all the sins of the world, actually defeated sin and death so that one day you can go to heaven with him. And then again, in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now, when you think that through logically, what were we just talking about that we were before Christ? Slaves. Yet Paul says, don't be slaves, but, but be what you were before God called you. You just told me not to be a slave, but you just told me to be what I was before God called me. So really, you are telling me to be a slave? Yes. It's that contrast there of who we are a slave to. He's not saying don't be a slave. He's saying don't be a slave to anyone besides God. In Romans 1, Paul's writing and he's talking about the weight on his heart of the unbelievers, and he actually says that he's indebted to the lost souls in this world. He's like, I was saved, and I was transformed, and I'm indebted to these souls. 
And then right after that is Romans 1.16 when he says, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the way to salvation. That's the one way. He's like, these people need to know it, and I'm going to give them the truth, and I'm not ashamed of it because I'm a slave to Christ, and I actually owe all these other people because I'm not any more special than them. All of us who were saved when we were two years old and had it easy, there are people in countries across the world who've never heard the gospel and they're dying and going to hell without it. It hasn't been that easy for them. That doesn't mean we were better. It just means we had more access. So that was Paul's mission. Paul's mission was to get the gospel everywhere. I'm actually indebted to these people because the time is short and the mission is great. In this passage in 1 Corinthians, as I said, you see at the tail end of chapter 6, you've got a verse about not being a slave to man, but actually honoring God with our bodies because he bought us. Then at the end of chapter 7, it's the same premise. In between that, do you know what Paul actually talks about? Marriage. You go, what? But... And I actually gave a best man speech this weekend for my friend who got married. And I talked to him about this passage. Like, this was my advice for him. It was on marriage. But it's like, how does marriage turn in with God buying us at a price and mean being a slave to him? I'll continue. If you all want to look along in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you can kind of follow it and see where I'm going. I'm not going to cite just exact verses, but I'm going to start at the beginning of the chapter and work my way down. In 1 Corinthians 7... At the beginning, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he says, like, guys, I'm not married. I actually stayed single for the cause of the gospel. He says, if I would have gotten married, my attention to the gospel would have been distracted. My mission to tell lost people about God would have been distracted and hindered. Because, obviously, women want our attention. It's not a surprise. But then that could go for women, too. Like, men are annoying. Like, I get it. Like, all the girls at your all's age, too, really think that all the guys are annoying. It's okay. I know Sydney thinks the same of me all the time when I ask her how she's doing every day. And she's like, good. Shut up. <laughs> but Paul's like, if I get with somebody, I'm going to be distracted from the gospel. So as a result, I'm actually going to stay single. And he says, too, at the tail end of this chapter, he says, the time is short. He's talking about this position from point A to point B salvation to actually going to heaven. This is not our eternal life. This is just the journey to the promised land right now that we're living in. Just as the Israelites were working to their promised land, we are too now. And Paul says, this is short. The time is short. I don't owe anything to anybody except to God and the lost souls in this world. If I get married, I'm going to be distracted. And in the tail end of the chapter, he actually starts talking to people who are married. And he says, Obviously, people are married because if they weren't, we wouldn't be here because we all know basic anatomy. Things go down between men and women so that we can actually be here. Like, it's a necessarily necessary part of life. Paul's not saying don't get married. Don't get me wrong. He just says, this is me. He says, but if you are married, act as though you're not. And this is what I said in my best man speech. I was like, I have one piece of advice for you. Please act like you're not married. And then everyone was like, what? And I told him, I was like, but... When you were single, you were not distracted from the gospel. And that's what Paul talks about in this passage all the way through. But then when he talks about marriage, he says, even if you're married, act like you're not. What he's saying is, together, you all should not be distracted. You all should still be on mission, even though you're married and together. So logically, Paul didn't get married because he didn't want to be distracted from the gospel. He just says, if you are married, act like you're not. He's saying the only cause for marriage is if that person actually makes you a stronger disciple for Christ. If they actually strengthen you in reaching out to others and spreading the love of God throughout the world. And I know a lot of you guys might not like to hear that, but it's true. That also applies to dating. 
Not, oh, this person's hot. Like, this person looks good. Like, I want to date him. I want to take him out. Like, hey, girl, like that Ryan Gosling meme we talked about a bit ago. Kate loves him, but... <laughs> But the point of the matter is, that stuff doesn't matter compared to the gospel. Everyone's like, I'm going to date this guy, or I'm going to date this girl. They're not a believer, and I'm actually going to point them to the Lord. I'm going to date them and disciple them, and then I'm going to tell them the Lord wants us to break up. No! Like, you guys are only supposed to date, then ultimately get into marriage, if, for the one reason, it glorifies God, and you help each other to make disciples. That's the only criteria for marriage. You don't hear that places, but it's right there in the scripture. That's the only thing. Not if this person looks good, not if they make you feel good. But beyond relationships, what does that apply to? That applies with what people do we spend copious amounts of time with? Friends? Like, obviously, Jesus was a friend of sinners for the sake that he wanted to see them saved. But who did he spend the bulk of his time with? 12 believers who he was actually going out making disciples with. All of Jesus' core time was with people who he actually made disciples with. That was, that was what it was all about. And Jesus actually exemplified this. Yet we start scratching our heads like, when I'm hanging out with these non-believers like 24-7, what, like, what's wrong? Like, I'm starting to become like them. Well, maybe that's the issue. You're spending more time with them than you're spending more time with people who are going to build you up to reach them. They will rub off on you eventually. That's the question that we need to ask ourselves whenever we realize that God didn't just take us in. He bought us. He bought us so that we could be indebted to him. This life is to him now. This life isn't just for us and our pleasures. That's what Paul got at with the marriage thing, which marriage is a very good example. We look at it in dating relationships with our core friendships. And, I mean, Matt, Matt taught on relationships once in dating, and he said afterwards, like, he had a bunch of guys coming up to him like, what's wrong with you? He's like, my girlfriend broke up with me now. Like, like, that actually did happen. Like, that's not necessarily what I'm asking you to do, but if that doesn't meet the criteria, it's not biblical and it's not necessary. So we should start to question these things. The reason why we should be here, the reason why we should be getting into the Word is not to read it and go, yeah, you know, I know this. That's good. Man, I should only be with people if they're going to build me up in Christ. Amen close the book and go, okay, to your boyfriend who just wants to have sex with you. Like, what are we going to do tonight? Like, that's not what, does that make sense? But that's what Christians do half the time, and that's why we get the label hypocrite. It's like, we take this book in. I'm not just here to tell you guys stuff so that you can go, yeah, amen. And then we go home, and we got this big pep rally, and we go to school tomorrow, and then you're all like, living the same life you were before you came. This is so that you can come and learn the word and we apply it to our lives and let it change us by the spirit changing our heart. If we learn this book but don't let us change our heart, like put it up, don't read it. It's pointless if you're not letting it change your heart. That was God's ent- Jesus's entire battle with the Pharisees. You guys know this inside and out, but you're not letting it transform you. That's what it is. And if you're a child of the king, you're naturally going to become like the king. Think of the pets that we saw, like, some of you could guess, like, that person probably did have that pet. Like, you also probably see people who own cars, and you go, I could see that. Like, you look like the kind of guy who would own that car. That car kind of actually looks like you, which is weird. We see all these things. Like, I've actually seen cars that look like their owners. Weird. But we're naturally drawn to things that are like us. We want to have ownership over things that are like us. God wants to have ownership of us so that we become like him. We were predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. That's why he came. And then we turn to the last part, which this is all just the meat of it. 
And then to see this actually lived out, we're going to turn to Daniel chapter 1 and 3 and look at this practically and physically lived out in people's lives. Because the reason why I hit that passage talking about relationships and spent the bulk of my time there is so we can understand this. There are going to be people in the world who want things from us. Whether I said that's a significant other, wanting you to give up their morals for sexuality, whether that's your friends wanting you to give up your morals so that you can go and drink and party with them, whether that's even, think of things in this life that try to label us. We've got our friends, we've got our boyfriends, girlfriends, we've got our family. That's not necessarily always a bad thing, but it can be when your family has something that they want you to live up to and a path they want you to go. It's like, no, follow the Lord. I'm not telling you to tell your parents they're crazy, but if they're not leading you in the way of the Lord, that's wrong. Even people in the church, sometimes if we go and we just want to be like the guy up there talking, like, and he's not putting us into the word, that's bad. They're trying to mold us into this Christian mold, which a lot of times will put us in that path of being a hypocrite, like I talked about. I don't tell you these things so you can just like say, man, that feels great. Like, it really made me feel good. I'm going to go home and tell my friends about it. Like, no, like, I want you to tell your friends about it because it's life-changing, not just because it makes your heart go, woo, like, I want you guys to actually let this change your life. And whether people label you anything, whether people want you to do anything, the only thing that matters is that our face stands. People can change our names. They can call us what they want. They can actually ask us to live up to these things, but none of that matters. The only thing that matters is our faith. They cannot change our faith, which we see in Daniel with who are the three guys in Daniel that got thrown in the fiery furnace? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? What if I told you that that was not actually their names? And we learned that in Daniel chapter 1. Jake, if you pull up the slide, we're going to put up their names, actually. Shadrach was Hananiah. Meshach was Mishael. And Abednego was Azariah. And we see in chapter 1 that they actually became servants of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he took their names and he changed them. We know them by their second name. That's not their real name. Their first name is what we see there. Hananiah meant God has favored. Mishael meant who is what God is. Azariah meant Jehovah has helped. All of their names in the Hebrew actually related to Yahweh, the one true God, the God that we worship. But when King Nebuchadnezzar took them in, he changed their name and made it something else that, replied, that applied to a secular meaning. Shadrach actually meant the great scribe. He's like, oh, God favored you? No, I favored you and made you my scribe. Your being is now in your occupation. You're a scribe. For Meshach, he changed his name to guest of a king. He's like, you are what God is? No, you are what I want you to be, and you're my guest. You're mine. You're not God's. Azariah, Jehovah has helped, went to Abednego, servant of Nebo, which this to me is the most interesting one because he takes... Nebuchadnezzar takes his name from Jehovah has helped and made it servant of Nebo. Nebo is actually who Nebuchadnezzar got his name from. Nebo was a Babylonian idol that they all worshipped. So this was, you're going from one God to my God. Interestingly enough, Moses, who brought the Israelites we've been talking about earlier out of, Is, out of Egypt to the promised land, Moses, the leader of all of that, died on a mountain called Mount Nebo. It was a mountain dedicated to this Babylonian idol named Nebo. So this was the biggest slap in the face of all because these people knew this. He's like, oh, you think Jehovah has helped you? No, you're a servant of Nebo, the, the one 
the one idol who actually caused your father to die. That's a huge slap in the face. So he goes, you're not God's, you're mine, my occupation I want you to be, my guest that I want you to be, and my God, Nebo, that I want you to serve. And we see there that even though he changed their name, eventually he built a big idol, a statue, and he wanted everybody to bow down to it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not. Word got back to Nebuchadnezzar, and he said, let's heat the furnace seven times over and throw them in. And he did. The interesting thing, though, which if you go, uh, that slide's good. The interesting thing, he threw three people in. King Nebuchadnezzar looked in and saw four people in. It was the Spirit of God joined with them in there. God protected them. Nothing happened to them. They came out unscathed. No char on them, no ash, their clothes weren't burned, nothing. You guys have probably heard this story a million times. But when you look at it, they, their names were changed. We actually know them by their changed names, which were actually slaps in the face to God. But what we know them by still also is their faith. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who have these names that have nothing to do with God? Yeah, cool. But the one thing that matters about, about them that makes them significant is not their name, it's their faith. Even though he changed their name, he didn't change their faith. Because God is bigger than the names that people put on us. We are children of the king. They were children of the king. And whenever they realized that it was more about just saying, hey, I'm a Christian, it's not a label. The label doesn't matter. The lifestyle does and the faith does. And when that faith kicks into action and we say, we don't care what you're going to do with us, throw me into the fire, when we face these hard times, instead of saying, hey, God, take me around this, we say we're going to go right through it, crazy things happen like this when God shows up and delivers you from it. A lot of times we wonder, like, man, look at all these great things in the Old Testament that happened. Like, God was stepping into furnaces and pulling people out of them. God was doing all these crazy things. He was parting the Red Sea. Like, look at all these things. Why is he not doing that today? Well, maybe because while you're asking these things, you're actually sitting on your couch in your peaceful little house whenever God's called us to mission to go and make disciples of all the earth, and he promised us that that's where he is. You want to encounter God? God's on the mission field. And the mission field is not just there. The mission field is also here. If you want to encounter God, get up, get out of your house, get out of your comfort zone, and make disciples everywhere you go. And you will find him, and he will do these crazy things still today, I can attest. But to wrap it up, just keep that one thing in mind. Even when people try to change our name, know that they can't change our faith and they can't change our God. Because he is the same, he is constant, and we are his children. And he wants us to be like him. And there's four points. I'm just going to sum over them real quick. I'm sorry it went a little longer than I should have. But the four points, never turn your back to what you've been brought out of. Just like the Israelites did. God brought them out of Egypt. Yet whenever they're going to the promised land, they're like, oh, crap, I need to go back. Like, that's stupid. You want to be a slave again? Don't do that. But this guy has it right. This guy just broke the little girl's heart. And he's like, ha, I ain't turning back. He goes on. This guy gets the picture. In a different sense, though. Number two, remember the price that Christ paid on the remember the price that Christ paid on the cross to buy freedom for you. When we remember that moment, and we remember that moment when we were bought out of slavery, just like the Israelites should have been looking at God getting them out of Egypt, we look back to Christ getting us out of slavery, and then the things that we face suddenly look much smaller. Number three, don't let anything distract you from the mission that God has served you to be a part of. I put social media icons on there because that's the biggest thing. That's the biggest distraction for me. 
It's like, man, I want to spend my time with God. Better make sure I actually put this on Instagram real quick. I want everyone to know what filter should I put. I got to make sure I, like, color my Bible and water journal it. Like, whoop-de-doo. Like, it's God's word. Like, if you want people to see it, like, just tell them to read it. Like, live it out. Like, they're not going to want to read it anymore if you put a cute flower on it. Like, they're going to want to read it if they see this book actually changed his life. So live it out. Don't just Instagram it. Like, it's not cute. I'm not bashing Bible journaling. It's a cool thing. It's good. But what I'm saying is that will not make people want to be a Christian. What makes them want to change their life is seeing that your life has been changed, that there's changing force in the gospel. Number four, when people try to change your name, don't let them change your faith. We use these Hello, My Name is stickers the past few weeks saying who we are. It's like, I could have put the dumbest stuff on Evan's name tag. I could have wrote, like, hello, my name is Big Idiot. Hello, my name is 2PC. Like, hello, my name is Coveter. Like, (laughs) all these different things. But that doesn't change the fact that he's Evan. He still is. It's on his birth certificate. We can't change it. Well, we could, but it would be a bad process. But that's my analogy. Like, we can't just easily, we can't, he's still Evan. We can't change who you are. You can change my name and call me whatever you want, but you can't change who I am. I'm a child of the king. You're all children of the king. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a child of the king. That can't be changed, just like we saw with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So that's all I've got. I'm going to pray, and we're going to go down to tech. God, I just want to praise you and thank you for this time that you've given us tonight to dig into your word. Thank you that I'm a child of the King. I thank you for adopting us, God. Even when we were still sinners, you loved us and sent your Son to deliver us out of that bondage. God, I pray that as we go from here, we're going to begin that walk back to the promised land one day whenever you will deliver us to heaven. And God, when we face battles in this life, whenever we face struggles, whenever people aren't treating us right, God, I pray that we'll look back to the cross and that will strengthen us and we will know that things in this world are small. Things in this world are short. We want to live this life for you, that we want to tell people about you and proclaim your name and make your name as the king the most important things in our lives and everyone else's. God, please transform us and send us by the power of your spirit to make disciples everywhere we go. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Refuel podcast. If you have any questions or would like to review the notes from this podcast, be sure to download the Refuel app from the App Store on any mobile device.